Hello and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Lippman. I just hated myself. There's, oh, I'm going to get all the most. I really hated myself. My body kept failing me. And so I couldn't do all the things that I so desperately wanted to do. I couldn't be a part of friendship groups. I couldn't go out. I couldn't do anything. You know, this thing, my, you know, my body, which is supposed to get me from point A, point B, it's supposed to be on my side. It just kept on failing. That's Natasha Misery, one of my oldest and dearest friends and my guest for today's episode. Natasha and I went to school together. We met when we were about 13 and then became friends sitting at the back of the lab and grumbling our way through GCSE physics classes. Looking back, neither of us can quite remember how or why we clicked. We just did. We got each other. Not because we went to the same school or because we didn't particularly enjoy physics. Over time, it turned out that there was something deeper to our friendship. Natasha was diagnosed with ME when she was 12, and we've talked a lot over the years about what being ill as a child looked like for us, and how it shaped us and the imprints it's left on our personalities. We've also pondered a lot about what it must have been like for our parents to watch the person they love the most in the world suffer and not be able to do anything about it. And that's the theme of today's show. Being sick as a child is difficult to explain if you've never experienced it. You feel different. You are different, but you so desperately want to be the same as everyone else in your class. It's hard enough being a kid, especially a teenager, when you're learning about the world and your place in it. But when you add to that a diagnosis or a lack of one, constant hospital appointments, weeks and months of missed school, and friendships that feel like they're balancing on a knife's edge, it can at times feel like it's too much for one child to take. I went through school living with undiagnosed Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and whilst it was a challenge, my experience was still relatively normal compared to Natasha's. So I'm really pleased to have her on the podcast today. In this incredibly personal and emotional episode, she shares her story and reflects on what it's like getting sick when you're so young, and the impact it has had on everything from her education and her relationships to how she thinks about herself, even now. I started by asking her to think back to when she first fell ill with Emmy. I was 12 years old. I was probably off school for about a month before my mum or I realised that there was something more amiss. And I think then we started having uh, lots of doctor's appointments to find out what was going on, lots of tests. I think the first initial thought was that it was glandular fever. And my mum told me today which I hadn't realised that there's an actual test for glandular fever because I was 12 years old, so I wasn't really aware of any of this. And it tested negative. So they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I think I was really lucky because we went into the senior school when I was about 11 years old. So it was the year before. And I hadn't changed school. And I think that was one of like my saving graces. So the school that we were at, I had been there since I was four years old. So they knew my character, they knew who I was. So they didn't think for one second this was me skiving or trying to stay off school um, or being unhappy. And I know really, really sadly, that's the case for so many people with ME when they get it at a really young age. And so I had all the school's support, like the educational staff, but it was still, you know, really, really tough trying to figure out what was going on with me. I think I was really lucky that I was 12 because I kind of took everything in my stride. I was uh, shielded from thinking about the bigger picture. Uh, And now that I look back over it, I know that for my mum, it was probably a tougher time for her than it was for me initially. What kind of symptoms were you experiencing when you first got ill and how did that then develop into being able to get a name to put to it? So initially... I had a really terrible stomach. And you and I have spoken about this. My stomach is my really weak area. So I was in physics class and I had to rush out. I remember it was about three o'clock in the afternoon and I just had to rush out to go and be sick. And I went to the nurse's office and was sick. And she called up my mum, took me home. And then I had, <laughs> I had terrible diarrhea. 
as my mum then recalled to every single doctor that we ever saw after that. She was like, she had, Natasha had the worst smelling diarrhea that I had ever smelled. And I was like, please stop, please stop, please stop. But yeah, that's basically was like my first symptom was being sick and terrible diarrhea. And then it just, that continued. And then it started to go into my whole body being in excruciating pain. So all my joints, um, my, it felt like my bones really hurt and I couldn't get comfortable in bed. So I would be lying down and then that would hurt. So I lie on my other side and that would really hurt. And then try and sit up, but that would really hurt. Uh, so I just couldn't ever get comfortable. I felt in so much pain being in my own skin. And then obviously you're in so much pain and you can't sleep. So then I wasn't sleeping unless you and I both know we are bad sleepers and the knock-on effect that has. And so I think those would be my main symptoms to begin with. Uh, it's, it's so hard to think about now because it's been so, it was so, so long ago. But those were the, those were the main symptoms that I remember really standing out to me. How long did it take for you to get a diagnosis of ME? I would say oh, this is this is really hard. I should have I should have done more home. I should have spoken to my mum more about this because she was the she was the main one who was really fighting for everything. So in my head, I remember going to Northwood Park Hospital and I was seeing the pediatrician because I was twelve. And I remember, so if I was, say, in the October, I think, September, October, I fell ill. So it was in the beginning of year eight. I remember being there over sort of the winter time, going up to his um, his office and being really, really cold. So I, I think sort of like a couple of months. I do feel it was like a couple of months. And I also know that the doctor did say to my mum, when I had like left the room, is she, how is she mentally? Is she happy? And my mum, to her credit, just shut that down straight away and said, no, she is really happy, which I was. I was like form captain. I did horse riding. I did ballet. I played lacrosse, netball. I was super active and present in school. I was very, very happy. And so my mum was incredible. Without her, I, I wouldn't have got through it. She, she fought for, for everything, absolutely everything. But I would say, yeah, I would say, I think a couple of months. Which is actually quite quick for an ME diagnosis. That's very, very quick. Yeah, I, <laughs> this is where my mum <laughs> will, will say, no, it was way longer. But I'm fairly certain it was a couple of months. And I also am, my mum was just relentless. My mum was really relentless and very pushy. My mother is, when it comes to health and when it comes to the health of her loved ones, she she was tired. I actually, do you mind if I actually, would that be okay if I actually just text her now and find out? What's, yeah. I just want to find out whether this is, because that's going to, um, I feel like that's actually something I should know and I don't. And Can you put her on loudspeaker? Yeah. Hello? No, no, I'm still doing it. Tashi's, Tashi's here at the moment. <laughs> and you're on loudspeaker with her. <laughs> Hello, Natasha. Hello, darling. <laughs> Hello. Oh, gosh, I haven't heard your voice Hi. since I was a child. I, I just wanted to ask, how long did it take for me to get a diagnosis with my ME? I would say about three months. Okay, so it was about three months. Okay. It was. It was awful. It was hell. It was okay. absolute hell. Okay. Thank you, mummy. Okay, darling. Sorry. Okay, love to Natasha. Bye. Love you. Bye, bye, bye. So there, it's three months and it was hell. <laughs> what kind of impact did that have on just your life generally? You said you were really, really active and I didn't I didn't know you before you got ill, um, but you were involved in so many things. And how did that then change for you in terms of school, in terms of social life, in terms of everything? Oh, everything changed. Everything changed. And yeah, I had been, I'd been a really active uh, kid. My mum sometimes thinks that she's worried that it was it was that I had been sort of pushed too much, whether that had been a factor in it. Because I literally, 
not a day went by where I didn't have some sort of hobby to do. So it was either like tap on the Wednesday, tennis on Thursday, swimming, like horse riding, ballet. So I remember on Saturday mornings, I didn't get a lion. I literally would be woken up and then taken to ballet and then would have to change in the car to go horse riding and then would come back. But I was I was really happy. I loved all of those things. And that's for a really long time. And I think literally until now, whenever I was taken to go and see a ballet, very fortunately, I would have this horrible envy, like just in my stomach and in my heart of just like, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do this. I have the same thing with musical theatre. It took me so long to not feel jealous because I was meant to go to drama school in New York I was meant to like do all of these things and then like I couldn't do it yeah no and I remember you were so fantastic and I think that's the thing when you've got this when you've got this passion for something and then it gets taken away it's not that you failed at it it's not that you got bored with it it's not that you wanted to stop or other things distracted you it was your own body failing you oh my god that was a real killer for me that was a real killer my dad says that one of his most heartbreaking memories uh I think again it was at the very beginning and so although I was ill I would sort of try and push myself because I didn't really know what was going on and so there was one day he came back and I was I was trying to be on my points in with just like trying to like do a little like pirouette or whatever and he was just like oh god this is this is horrible this is really horrible seeing your sick child desperately struggling to do the thing that she was able to do just a few months before but it totally it totally totally changed me as as a as a person as a as a I mean I don't think at 12 you can be called so much person as a kid my friends my little group of friends who I had been really close to, they initially used to um, like invite me out and still wanted to include me and still wanted to make me feel like I was part of the group. But then inevitably, by, by the 15th time you get told, no, Natasha's too ill to come out, they stop asking. And there was one time being in Pinna in Cafe Rouge and my parents had taken me out to just try and cheer me up. I think it was like after a doctor's appointment. And and I saw my group of friends crossing the street and it was just horrible because I just realised that, that I was no longer being asked. And if I was no longer being asked, it kind of meant that I was no longer a part of the group. And if I was no longer a part of that group, I, I didn't have any friends. Like that's the truth for... I would say in, pretty much until I met you, I had acquaintances. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I would say I would say you and then there were like some other girls. But yeah, year eight, year nine and year 10 were, were pretty much a write-off. Like there was, and you were the only person who could, who could empathize or understand. Otherwise, there was this whole part of my life that I was just trying to conceal. I was talking to my mum the other day and she said to me, that I had said to her many, many years ago that you said, oh gosh, I feel like a teenager. My mom said that your mom yeah. said that I, that I was the only one that understood you because my mom had had Emmy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, having someone who actually has heard of Emmy, even now I get excited. If someone, if someone knows what I'm talking about when I say Emmy and their faces aren't blank, and that's now when there's been so much more um, awareness around the illness. I mean, back then, it was 20 years ago, 21 years ago. That I haven't even, I haven't even actually worked that out. That's really big. So yeah, if you can imagine like all that time ago, and there's this person in my class who who doesn't have a blank face when I'm saying I have ME. That's incredible. And you feel you also feel like you're understood. There has been so much misinformation around the illness. I would say up until about five years ago, I never really wanted to say I had ME because it was always one that was associated with yuppie flu or all those really crappy nicknames. 
I always wanted to just say, oh, I've got a chronic illness rather than saying what the illness was, which I actually, and now that I'm older and now that we're so much more um, of owning our stuff, I feel really bad about. I definitely was not a campaigner. How did that translate in school with other people? Something that I really wanted to talk to you about was your experience of kind of coming back into school because it was a really a very unique experience that you had in school, but also in terms of how did you talk about that with people? How did you even bring it up? Did you try and bring it up? Um, I, I know that I I was nowhere near as ill as you were, so it's like not the same in any way, shape or form, but I, I didn't talk about my pain most of the time. I didn't talk about those things because you want to be normal. I didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> Frantically shaking my head, no. I didn't talk about it at all. And I used to get annoyed when the teachers would sort of bring it up because they were being kind. They were wanting to make other students aware there was something different with me and it sh- I should be sort of treated a bit more with kid gloves and be kind to her and this must be really hard. And if I were a teacher, if I were in their position, I would have done exactly the same thing. But I hated it. I did not want anyone to bring out or highlight anything that made me different from anyone else in class. I really didn't talk about it. I think literally people knew I was ill, but as I said, I didn't, I really didn't sort of um, go around shouting that from the rooftops. My mum, however, had a whole folder, a binder or Emmy and like we're full of articles and information and for Emmy week she'd bring it in every every week to school and I'd be like oh god stop please stop this is this is awful I don't want anyone to realize that I'm different and now that I look back over it I think I, I'm not entirely sure what I was thinking because clearly I was different I I literally came into school for an hour a day, a couple of hours a day. I think you and I have spoken about this before where it, it was my physio. School for a very long time was basically an extension of physio, how long I could physically sit up, how long I could um, interact with other people. But I mean, the truth is I would spend the majority of the time in the library. So I would spend a couple of hours just in the library each day and teachers would say to whichever kid was in class that I was meant to be in you know go and see Natasha go and speak to her and so these so-called friends but like you know my peers would come in and sit across from me and would try and interact with me and they probably didn't really want to be there they didn't really know what to say to me and I didn't really want them to be there because I just didn't want anyone seeing me but I remember like they would they would come in and they would just be full of life and full of stories and full of health. And they would sit there with me for about 10 minutes and then they would leave, taking away with them all their life and health and stories. And it would always leave me feeling more alone and more isolated. I did become very sad when I was about 16. And I've always said to my mum and whichever doctor if ever they would try and highlight it I would say I'm not ill because I'm sad I'm sad because I'm ill and that was I think the only time I've ever been really really depressed in my life was when I was about 16 when it was just it was just so much I was I was struggling to do my GCSEs I so desperately didn't want to be put in the year below and I think now that I'm older, I think that actually probably would have been, I don't know, I think that could have been a wise move. It would have just taken the pressure off of me rather than trying to keep up. It just felt like I was frantically treading water just so that I could do my GCSEs with everyone else. Because I already felt like I'd been isolated from my peers. I didn't want to be more isolated from them. And the impact that that also had on your education is something that we've talked a lot about as well. Oh yeah, Tashi, I've got huge gaps in my knowledge. <laughs> and it's it's only now that we've got so much older and that uh, people in their 30s have now started to forget what they what they had been taught at school, um, that it's not so apparent. But otherwise, there are so many things. My mum will say, where somewhere is on a map, 
and I'll I'll say things like, oh, are you going to go down to Durham? And she's like, no, Durham's up. <laughs> what are you talking about? And it's like really basic things like that, or with like history, or I mean, there are just so many things that I really ought to know that I don't. Even really embarrassing things like than and then where it was just for ages and I did an English degree where I would be like what is this because there was just like this huge foundation level which was missing. You talked about people coming in and telling stories and then leaving and the stories went away. How did this impact your relationship just with people in general and the way you thought about yourself in context or how you thought about yourself in relation to the people around you? I, I really didn't think of myself at all. I think that's why when I was 16, I got really, I got really, really low. I just hated myself. There's, oh, I'm going to get all the most. I really hated myself. Sorry. I just, my body kept failing me. And so I couldn't do all the things that I so desperately wanted to do. I couldn't be a part of friendship groups I couldn't go out I couldn't do anything and you know this thing my you know my body which is supposed to get me from point a point b it's supposed to be on my side it just kept on failing and I think the other thing is at this at this point I was still trying to navigate the illness I don't know whether that makes much sense but like I was still getting to terms with the ME Whereas now, now I know my Emmy so intimately. So I know when I'm having a good day. I know when I'm having a bad day. I don't, um, I don't try and put too much pressure on myself. I don't beat myself up. I try and be my own best friend. It's, it's okay. I can try mindfulness, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but back then I still wasn't, um, I still wasn't well-versed. And so if I had a good week, I would just assume this was now sort of my trajectory was up. I always thought it would just be linear. It's going to go this way. I didn't realize that I would just have ups and downs. And I think you and I have said this where if we've had a setback, we then really take it personally or can take it personally. And, and the difference between saying um, a flare up and a blip. And so I think for me, year, year nine, year 10. So that's what 14, 15, 16, I felt that there was so much stop and start. Like I felt like, oh, I'm I'm getting to grips. I'm, I'm starting to be able to attend some classes. And then something would happen. I would get like a cold or I'd get just knocked off or, or just a flare up. I'd just get knocked back off course. And so I felt all these friendships, all these relationships were just so fragile. It just felt like everything was being taken away from me. And I do now kind of have almost... Um, I can be quite self-sabotaging where I'll sort of think, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the, um, sort of like, I'm going to push the eject button on this because at least if things end on my terms, I can say when things end, as opposed to at some point, this is all going to be taken away from me. That's been my attitude. At some point, this is all going to be taken away. Uh, and that's been very much ingrained in me since I was about that age because everything was. How much did you come up against disbelief or being pushed or so many of those things that people with ME often face that you're so young, how can you be so tired? Because people don't know the difference between fatigue and tiredness. How can you not be able to do this? Why aren't you coming out with us from adults and from other kids? I think actually that's where I'm just thinking about this now. That's probably where I've got my I don't want to talk about it attitude from. It's like, if I don't talk about it, if I don't show you this part of me, you can't disbelieve it. That would hurt so much more than at least I'm the one who's chosen not to show it to you. You know, if someone rejects you, at least you've rejected them before they can reject you. I Again, I think I was really, really lucky with the school. They were really good with me. And I think... And I know I'm so lucky with that. I know I'm so, so lucky. I'm one of the really, I think I'm one of the few because anyone who I've met who's had ME and had it at a young age, they've all come up up against, you know, disbelief, exactly as you're saying. And that's been mostly from the school. And I think because they knew me at such a young age, because I'd had a relationship with them, they always believed me. 
I had, I really had a whole load of, I, I, I can't talk highly enough about the teachers around me. They really, really cared and were invested in me as, as a person and just with my own health. With other students, I think there was, it wasn't so much disbelief, but there was irritation on their behalf because I could do certain things, but then couldn't do other things. So they would then think, okay, but you were able to, I mean, this would all be as I'm, I was getting better and I had more energy to do these things. I mean, I was able to go to the doll's house and have some tea or a piece of cake one, you know, for, for one day. But then why wasn't I able to go out to a gig like the following day? And it's like, well, because those two things are completely different in my wheelhouse. And because I did that on, on Friday, I have no energy now for the rest of the week. So, and so I knew there was irritation. And I think because I never explained it to them, again, that was my choice because I just thought, I just don't want to show you something that's so intensely personal to me. Yeah, I don't think they ever really understood. I don't think there was ever. One of the things that you said the last time we talked was that waiting has been a symptom of your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think there's so much with when you when you're ill at such a young age you in one way you're shielded from like all the 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 reality of what could your life could be at no point did I think this is going to be it and I think because in my head I thought well this is just for now I was always waiting to get better waiting to be able to be with my classmates waiting to be able to do my A-levels, waiting to be able to go to university, waiting for life to begin. I mean, life couldn't just be doctor's appointments and and hospital trips and being fatigued and in pain. I was just so convinced that just that just couldn't be life because I was just in the library for so much, um, so much. I would just pick up books and I'd read them and one of them was Wuthering Heights and getting to that passage where Kathy is dying and she turns to Nellie and says, you know, you pity me, but I am wearing to escape into the world. I am tired of being held prisoner in the shattered prison. You know, I want to be really a part of the world and really with it and in it and not seeing it dimly through tears. And I just thought that's how I felt. Just like I was just waiting to be to be in the world. And I've got a very weird, um, I think, relationship now with life where I can be overly optimistic and positive and just like, oh my God, I'm walking down the street. This is so great. I can I can go and do a food shop. This is so amazing. This is just the best day ever. And then there are sort of big things where I'll sort of build them up in my head and think, oh, I've been waiting a lifetime to experience this. I mean, especially, I mean, I was essentially a 12 year old in an 18 year old's body, which is a dangerous combination. So when I looked like, I've, I first met a boy, it was just like, great, he's going to recite Wordsworth to me. And he's going to sweep me off my feet. And this is going to be so great. And then you realize, oh, he's an 18 year old boy. He's rubbish. <laughs> and so I think I've got this very sort of bipolar attitude of just being really overly optimistic and positive, And then just like, crushingly sort of negative and just oh this doesn't live up to the hype speaking of boys can we talk about your first boyfriend because your reason for dating him besides having a brilliant name which we're not going to say but he had a brilliant (laughs) name what was the reason that you started dating him his sister had emmy (laughs) his sister had emmy and i i mean that was incredible to me so i met this boy who i thought was very handsome and was really lovely and we were talking and he found out that I was a year older than he was and so he had assumed I had done a gap year when instead what I had done was a classics A level in a year because I could only do two A levels and so he was sort of you know teasing me and saying oh you know where did you go and I said I didn't I, I, I've been ill when I was younger and then I could tell he started to get quite excited and he's like oh my god what you know, what did you have? I was like, oh, it's, it's, it's nothing. It's, um, it's this, uh, I have, I had Emmy and he got really, just like, oh my God, my sister had Emmy. And it was like, 
the clouds parted and such. I just thought this is, I have to be a part of this person's life. I can't wait to get to know his sister. And um, yeah, that was, that was the thing I was most drawn to him about. And I was really lucky. I think I really landed on my feet when I met him because having a first relationship is difficult enough to navigate, let alone having a chronic illness. And this person completely understood my energy levels, my adolescence. I didn't have to explain anything to him because he understood the vernacular of everything. And his sister, oh my God, his sister was just the loveliest person, still is the loveliest person. And she was the first person who I'd met who had ME and who I had met organically. And having someone who completely, you know, about the same with you, you know, understands where you're coming from and can actually see you and, and accepts you is, oh, wow, that's, that's so special. Especially when you've spent like the past five, six years trying to hide that side. We'll hear more from Natasha in a moment, but I just wanted to take a minute to thank the sponsor of this episode, my friends over at Flow, the online pharmacy that makes ordering your medication easy. Manage and track your medication and have it delivered at the touch of a button. They'll liaise with your GP for you and you can order, track and manage your medications with ease. They also send you handy reminders so you'll never miss a medication again. And they're not just another online pharmacy. They have a dedicated team of pharmacists and patient care professionals who can be reached online or over the phone. It's like having your own personal team in your pocket. You can organise your prescriptions ahead of time with their free delivery via the Royal Mail 48-hour tracked service across the UK. And if you live in Birmingham or London, you can also try the same-day delivery service for free. Two delivery credits are assigned to your profile automatically upon registration. They also offer bookable time slots so you don't have to wait all day for your order. I've been using Flow for a while now and I've been really impressed with the service. From timely phone calls and responses to my queries on chat to being able to easily keep track of my medications, it has saved me time and effort when dealing with my prescriptions. Visit weareflow.com, that's weareflow.com or download Flow on your favourite app store. How did you find that transition from school and teenagehood and all of those things that just everyone experiences with being a teenager and then everything you have to deal with on top of that? How did you find that transition into adulthood, into university, into engaging more with the world again? Because you did have a remission at some point. Yeah, I did. Um, And that would be when I was at university. Although I do say... I never really pushed myself to the same limits. So once I then started to work, um, that's when things started to flare up again. And I often think, well, I wonder if it's because I was never really pushing myself. You know, you'd go to class and then you'd come back and crash. So then you were able to like go out and do something. But I've definitely, I, I've spoken about this with two of my best friends at university were lesbians. And um, I think one of the things that we all bonded over, and we spoke about this quite recently, was that we had similar sort of adolescences. They were desperately trying to come to terms with a part of themselves that was not a choice, just biological, and what that meant and trying to hide it from certain people. And not that I can really, you know, it's, it's apples and oranges, but it's actually more apples and pears. I had something very similar, which is... I was trying to come to terms with a part of me, which was biological, that I did not choose. And I was trying to hide it from other people. And I think within that sort of little community, I felt very understood, very heard. And I think the other thing is I was able to sort of reinvent myself a little bit. I remember being in um, in my first sort of classes at university and I would insist on being called Tash rather than Natasha. And now, I've, now I'm now i trying desperately to break that with all my friends. I'm like, no, I'm Natasha. <laughs> Call me Natasha. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to be able to take control a little bit more of how I was seen. I didn't want to be seen as the ill girl or the one who missed out on so much schooling. Yeah, I, I kind of just wanted a clean slate. I wanted to step away from, or just take a sidestep from who I had been growing up. And I actually think I was 
fortunate enough to have had that remission. And in that remission, I think I came to terms and made a lot of peace with having been so ill when I was younger. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently, I think partly because we've been talking about it, which led me to have conversations with my mum about it, is how hard it was for our parents. Because when you're young, as you said, you are shielded from a lot of things. You don't know anything different. Even if like you hadn't had this thing your whole life, you adapt really quickly as a kid. I know exactly what you're saying. You are shielded from from so much, from from sort of like the facts of the world. I know that my mum was the was the main person and my dad too, but it was her. It was her who was having to fight for my diagnosis. It was her who was having to take me to all my doctor's trips. She was the one who had to have me hysterically crying. I remember there was um there was like a 24-hour cortisol test that they had. I had so they take blood from you throughout the throughout the day and then pump you through full of like hormones and they because they kept on um say having to use different veins and so they had to do it at the back of my knee and in my and oh I was just crying and so my poor mum was the person who was having to like hold me distract me take care of me she had me crying saying I don't want to go back to the doctors I don't want to go to physio I don't want to do there was so much that she had to a fight for me to have all those opportunities and then also fight for me to actually get there because I didn't want to so which would have been frustrating as well she would have felt she she must have at times felt a little bit frustrated I was only 12 you know I, I didn't want to get I was in pain I didn't want to get out of bed I was in agony and then I was getting dragged in the freezing cold to a doctor's office where you get prodded and poked and different tests I, that no that's not fun I don't want to do that but she it was definitely I can see that it was so much so much harder on her and I know the older I get, I realise that um, she needed her own support network. So both of my aunts have been incredible. But one of my aunts, I remember my mum calling up my aunt Chrissy and saying, Natasha's really sad. This must have been when I was about 15 years old. And I just felt so alienated from everyone in class and just felt so alone. And so she called up my aunt Chrissy and then my cousin Charlotte, who I'd always been really close to, from then on rang me every single day without fail. You know, even if I could only speak for a couple of minutes because I was too poorly, she would just call me. And I think for my mum having that lifeline of someone who gets this and not only can, was she a great, a great soundboard for my mum, but then she could get my cousin to be an amazing soundboard for me. And I, I always say in my life, there are very few people who I think actually get it. And, and that, and that goes, um, for people who really, really love me and care for me. But I would say, yeah, my Auntie Chrissy and, and Charlotte would definitely be some of them. Something that, that always makes my mum really emotional is I think a doctor once said to her, who cares for the carers? And my mum never let me see how my ill health as a child impacted her. And she said, it was so hard for me saying no to you. It was so hard for me seeing you suffering and everything that you were going through. And she said, I felt very sorry for you, but she didn't, she didn't show that to me because it wouldn't have helped me. And I know everyone is different and the way it was dealt with for me actually worked very well for me. Um, I can't even imagine how hard it was for my mom. And it's only as an adult, as you said, that I'm recognizing that because you kind of don't think about it as a child because it's like, they're your parents, their job is to look after you and their job is to like do these things. And you don't, you don't think also when you're going through something that it has an impact on the people around you. And I think a big part of then like growing up with these conditions is recognizing how hard it is for the people in your life as well, which can have also, that can do like weird things to your brain too, because then you're like, oh, then you start feeling like a burden and you start, it's like, it's when that switch comes, it's like, oh no. <laughs> oh no, I realized I've been a real brat with this. Yeah, absolutely. I remember saying to my mom, you know, well, you don't, you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know the pain. You don't know. And she's like, and I remember her saying, I am a really close second. And I would actually now, I would go as fast to say, no, her pain was worse than mine. I don't know whether I would say, <laughs> I don't know whether I'd still say that. Because I think now that I'm older, I'm sort of more aware. And also, 
I my illness is now sort of I've taken over the reins as it were so I'm the one now controlling it whereas for my mum I mean she was the one who was having to do everything absolutely everything I would yeah she I, I, I she's just been amazing she's been amazing and as you know just hearing her on the phone just there when she said it was hell for me it's a fuzzy memory and I can just pick out certain instances and I know the general feeling like I, I, when I look back, I think I remember being in pain and feeling alone. But for my mum, I mean, she would remember every single date, every single doctor's appointment, what they said, that all of that is etched on her brain. It was definitely, I think, much tougher for her. As you just said, you've now like taken over the reins of your health and you're now officially a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> Actually a grown up. How do you feel with your health now? And also, how do you feel looking back on 12-year-old Natasha? There are definitely times, and you'll you'll just think this is so, this is just so me. This was so me, age 16. There are times where I will genuinely really feel like, mom, help, I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't know how to make this appointment. You know, when you just are so fatigued and you're so over it you're just so tired. You're just so tired to your, to your core where you think I'm not making any sense. I know if I'm trying to make an appointment, I will make the wrong appointment. I just need assistance. Mummy help. (laughs) But I definitely, um, as, as you said, it's been, it's been over two decades. So I feel almost for the first decade of being ill, I would say I saw my illness as like, almost like a captor. This was the thing that had imprisoned me. This was the thing that took me away. This was an evil force in my life. I really, really, I hated it. I hated my body as a result. And then I wouldn't say I saw it, I see it as a friend, but I definitely don't see it as an enemy. I just see it as a part of me. I've got, I'm far more accepting of it. And I'm far more accepting of my limitations or, and I I will say, okay, I'm having a bad day today or, okay, I'm not making much sense or, you know, I'm in pain or it's been a setback. I don't have the same, that same sort of resistance to it. I, I would get almost that added pressure of, well, what's the word I'm looking for? What is it? What is it? And not being able to pluck it out from the air would then irritate me so much. I remember once having a meeting and I could not remember the word for car. And I mean, that's such a basic word. That was such a basic, but rather than sort of beating myself up, I was just able to laugh it off. I would say another huge help. And for me, I, I, COVID has been devastating, but the amount of awareness people now have for brain fog is phenomenal. There are people in my life who I know have never understood that, that when I've said I'm really exhausted just sitting in this restaurant, they've not really understood that. They're like, you're just sitting down. You're just sitting down and eating. Were you not going to sit down and eat at home? So what's the difference to being in this restaurant? And then trying to explain, no, this chair is uncomfortable and I can't lie down and I might need to be sick and the noise and the brightness and having to get there. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just had a flashback to when we were like 18 and we were in a restaurant and both of us were just like heads on the table <laughs> in between the food. Exactly, exactly. You were the only person I could do this with and just be like, oh, I can't, I must sleep now. <laughs> this is too much. This is too much having to sit and digest. How do people do this? And people are so loud. And people are so loud. They're so loud. And so that's been the that's been the good thing for me for COVID is having so many people who have said, oh God, my brain is just not working. It's just not functioning. I can't remember things. I'm still, I've still kind of got long COVID. And at that point I'll pounce and say, okay, so this is what it's like to have ME, or this is a little bit. Now you can kind of understand a little bit of what I mean when, and I'm not being stupid. I remember, and I feel really bad because this person was only 18 at the time, or it could have been 17. I, I had missed, so for my AS year, I missed the whole year. For my AS English exam, the only essay I had written going into the exam 
was my GCSE paper. So I had literally missed an entire year of, of school. And that was my last really bad flare up. And I remember being in a biology class and not knowing what it was like a quiz and, and not knowing the answer or literally having no idea. I hadn't been there for the whole year and turning to my friend and and saying, I don't understand. And heard snapping and really loudly in the class just saying, what don't you understand? And just feeling just so, so small and just thinking, I'm not. I, I, I'm not stupid. I know I'm not stupid, but this makes me feel overwhelmingly stupid. And this response makes me feel just like, okay, that's it. I'm never asking any questions again. And so with the emergence of long COVID, it's just so nice to feel that there might be other kids who were, um, are in my shoes or were in my shoes, you know, aged 18. And now perhaps there are more people who will understand what brain fog is and won't just dismiss it as, oh, she's, or he is a bit dim. One of the things also that I've been thinking about is how we are as people personality wise and how we interact with the world because of our illnesses. We've both said this, that we are probably much nicer people. I think you're naturally a nicer person than I am, by the way. But like, I definitely know my mum said that I became a lot more empathetic. I became a lot more patient because of my health. And it's kind of interesting to look at the way our illnesses have shaped us and how the way we respond to our illnesses is also shaped by our personalities as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel very much because my AME was in my life at such a young age, I feel like it's almost been another parent. It's been something that's brought me up. And as I've said to my mum and my dad, you know, you can't really get into a massive strop with someone if you then get up and say, okay, now you need to help me leave the room. <laughs> you know, I can't actually stand up. So you're going to have to help me walk out. And I can't actually, I don't have the physical ability to slam this door. So if you could slam it for me. And so you're constantly, what's that line from that film? You know, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. That has always stuck in my head. I've always, I don't know about you, but when I have walked down the street, I will sort of like pick out a few people that I think, okay, if I have a fainting spell or if I need a little, I think you seem nice that I'm going to need to lean on you. And so I think, which has been kind of annoying because I would quite like to be able to be sort of, um, I'd quite like to be sort of more confident or more, not abrasive, but just being able to be more direct. Whereas I always come from a place of lacking. I've always come from a place of, I need your help. I need your assistance. I'm going to need you to get, I need you to be nice to me because at some point I could have a flare up. So I definitely, I remember, so like my ex-boyfriend and I, we had like completely different sort of styles of just like how he interacted with people. He was able to be far more brusque, whereas I had to, I was always far, far nicer and far more gentle. But because I, I had no choice but to be, I mean, that's also, that is also actually just how I am. I'm very shy, but I definitely know that it shaped me in a way of sort of need, knowing that I need people around me. What would you say to 12-year-old Natasha with everything that you have learned in the last 20-something years? Gosh, I'm going to end up getting teary again. Um, I just want to hug her. Because I was, you know, as as unaware of everything, I was I was scared, and I was I didn't really know what was going on, and I was unhappy. So I think I would say that it's okay to feel everything you're feeling. I think I would say for her to speak up a little bit more, to probably to probably tell people what you need from them. I know you and I had this conversation about, you know, when I said to you of, of, of seeing my friends in, in Pinna and realizing that I hadn't been asked to go out. And I could have just said, hey guys, I know the answer's probably gonna be no, but it's always nice to be asked. Just because I can't be present, it doesn't mean that I don't want to be present. So I think I would, I would tell her to use her voice a bit more. 
that there might be some people who don't get it, but that's okay. It doesn't mean that they don't get you and it doesn't it doesn't mean that what you're saying or what you're feeling is incorrect or a lie. It's just that they don't get it and that's that's on them. That's their journey. And I would say just just try and be as just try and be as gentle on yourself as possible. That I think that was the main thing. I was so tough on myself as as a kid. I just beat myself up so much. I just saw my body as such a failing. I saw myself as such a failing. And so I would say that to just try and take it easy and that this isn't as bad as you think it is. And you'll meet some, and the people who you do meet, and this is one thing I absolutely believe, my friends, who are my friends, you, are people who I could call on at any time and who I can really lean on. And I think that is incredibly special. Those friendships, one of those friendships are worth like a million Facebook friends, or I don't know, because I don't do socials, but (laughs) like fake friends, you know, those are the real special people. And I think, I think that makes me very lucky. A huge thank you to Natasha for sharing her story with me. This was a really emotional episode to record and there were many quiet tears on the video as we did. It gave me a deeper insight into my friend's experience and I think speaks to a lot of things that many living with chronic illness can relate to. Thank you again to our sponsor Flow, the online pharmacy that makes ordering your medication easy. Visit weareflow.com, that's weareflow.com or download Flow on your favourite app store to manage, track and have your medication delivered at the touch of a button. If you find this podcast helpful and want to support my work, please consider subscribing to my restroom newsletter. It's an in-depth look at how to live and live well with chronic illness, from personal insights into how I spent years learning how to feel safer in my body, to reflections on hope with chronic illness and sleep tips that actually take our unique experience into consideration. Find out more and become a free or premium member at natashalipman.substack.com. Premium memberships are £5 a month or £50 a year and give you access to exclusive content. We're working on premium episodes of the podcast coming soon, so it's a great time to join us. Please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. And that's all from me. Thank you so much for joining me in the restroom. Ta-ta for now.